This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. Welcome everyone again to another episode of our painstaking investigation of the making of speed. You know what? We have what they call a picture lock. Everything on the screen is in place. What we've shot on location, what we've shot on sound stages, it's all edited together. The post-production visual effects elements have been conceived and executed, and now, in the final stages, we move from what we see to what we hear. And we'll start today with the film's original score by composer Mark Mancina. We hear a little bit of it every week here on 50 miles per hour. After all, what better way to get you in the mood for each episode than this energetic, pulse-pounding music that would ultimately influence countless movie scores, particularly in the 90s. It's frankly, somehow, underrated. And today, we're going to meet Mark, but before we do, let's have a few old friends catch us up in the timeline. Here is former Fox executive Jorge Saralegi. Okay, so now we're done. We're in post. We hire Mark Mancina as the music guy. I think it was his first job because Hans Zimmer guaranteed him. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'll backstop him. I'll supervise. He didn't supervise him. I mean, as you would imagine. (laughs) That was, and it's totally fair. That was his way of getting his guy the job. And he trusted his guy. And he was right to trust this guy and nothing ever went wrong. So he never had to back up anything. Right. So in effect, it was Mark Mancina and he did this fantastic job. And here's producer Mark Gordon. Mark Mancina. He was, you know, Hans's one of Hans's guys. And I remember sitting down with uh, Mike Gorfain and Sam Schwartz, who were his agents and may still be his agents and them coming in and saying, well, what do you think about, this guy and they played me some stuff and I went, yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. And everybody got excited about it and he wasn't expensive and we didn't have a budget to, to pay up, you know, a, a Hans Zimmer or, or, you know, some of the other, you know, major uh, action composers at the time. And again, I mean, Mark is a really talented guy, but I think speed is one of his best scores. It's really good. It does everything. It figures it was the guy's, you know, first job doing his own. He had a lot of good material, and he just nailed it. Now let's hear from director Jan de Bont on this. Every source tells me that Jan was not interested in a major name, even if one was in the cards, and that he fought hard for Mark to get the job. Jan himself told me this as well, so let me pull him in here for some quick thoughts on the direction he wanted to take with the original score for Speed. Mark was great. I was so lucky to have found him, you know, and he got this, the right background from working in big uh, recordings for rock bands and, and came from the right place to really be a composer of this because this movie n- needed a composer who actually wasn't very experienced in film composing. 
it was actually really great in getting um, the feeling of the action across, the feeling of the motion, the feeling of the intensity. If you work as a lot of composers, you know that they use their repeat performance quite often, you know, what they've done in other movies and that worked really great, they then keep using it. And for him, this was the first time. So he only could think about his old uh, recordings for, for bands and things like that. That to me was perfect. So. He wasn't a composer that worked with Hans Zimmer in, in his studio at a, at a little room in the back. Hans kind of takes care of a lot of young composers. He gives yeah. them little things to do. And I met him and I was, I was listening to what he was doing and, and I instantly liked it. So it was a little hard to get him to work because the studios, they always like, like no names, People who've done it before, so they can be guaranteed a good score. What they call a solid score. And I didn't want a solid score. I wanted an original score. So something that really supports the movie, not only in suspense, but also in the street feeling, in the presentness of the city all the time. Because it is not a studio movie. I mean, everything is on location. And it's really... Uh, to see that, that they recorded, to feel that, and also in the title credit. To me, that is actually the intro of a city opera, of speed the opera, you know, because you, we all know the city, at least people in LA, and you can see that everybody recognizes where they are and what, why is it, why is it different. What downtown is it different from Santa Monica, from Westwood, from uh, all the different areas we went through. And that is really, to me, it's like a kind of, mismatch of different cultures that you see in this particular city. And you don't see that many times in other cities. That beautiful intro by Mark. I remember asking, take a little bit of an opera, you know, so where you see all the introductions of all the songs, all the areas you go through, all the drama. You kind of pre-tell the story. You kind of introduce the audience to the story. And with that, I'd like to introduce everyone to the man of this particular hour, Mark Mancina. Mark has gone on to become the wildly successful composer of other films like Twister, Con Air, Training Day, and Disney's Tarzan and Moana, as well as TV's Criminal Minds. Prior to Speed, he had some experience composing for movies in a collaborative fashion on a series of films produced by actor and choreographer David Winter's Action International Pictures. I've never seen them, but these look like schlockfests in the vein of Roger Corman with titles like Rage to Kill, Man Killers, Codename Vengeance, Space Mutiny, just a slew of these things. But mostly Mark was entrenched in popular music. He was also, as you heard, and like many young composers over the years, part of Oscar-winning composer Hans Zimmer's brain trust of musicians who would get opportunities through their affiliation with him. And that's how the speed gig would come to Mark. The result, in my opinion, is one of the greatest action movie scores of all time. We're going to hear from Mark now, and I'm going to handle things a little differently today. As I listened back to my chat with Mark, I couldn't quite figure out how I would chop it up for the usual format. After all, there isn't a lot of back and forth to be had here. We've set him up with Jorge and Jan and Mark Gordon, but now he's off to work on his own. So I figured I would just run the interview basically as is. I thought it was a pretty great conversation that flowed really well, and Mark is just super easy to talk to and listen to. So... Here's Mark Mancina starting right in on where he was in his career in early 1994 when this job arrived, and in fact, why it would prove to be such a great year for him. 
I'll pop in once or twice, but mostly I plan to just let this thing run. So enjoy. That was a really good year for me. That was uh, 94, right? A couple years before that, I toured with Trevor Rabin, who was the guitarist for Yes. I toured as his keyboard player. And during that time, I was writing a lot of songs. And I wrote a song for Yes, which they recorded and I co-produced. And I wrote a song for Emerson, Lake and Palmer, which they recorded. And I produced the entire record. So that was kind of what I was doing in like 1990, you know, right when 1990 started. So after that was all done, I moved back to America and I was doing um, trailers for uh, movies. So I had this really good skill set at taking three minutes and compacting it into a three minute piece of music and making it say the entire movie, because that's what trailers used to do. They, they weren't just about bashing you in the face and hitting you over the head and making you go see the movie. They were more like a story. Mm-hmm. That was really good training. Um, I was also, you know, I was doing the songs for a movie called The King of the Jungle. I was arranging and producing those songs because I was really good at that. And that became The Lion King. So The Lion King, that energy and speed, those two movies going out into the universe really changed my entire life. Within five days, they were released of each other. It was crazy. You know, it's a hard time for me to remember because it was just, it was out of my uh, realm of uh, things that I had had experienced. But yeah. The other thing was that uh, I had done a movie called um, True Romance. I worked Mm -hmm. on that with Hans. I did about, I don't remember, I did like three or four scenes that he gave me to score. And uh, some of that music ended up as a temp music to speed which is how I heard of Jan and how they told me that Jan went to Hans and said, I want you to do this or, or, you know, I don't have the budget to get you, but whoever did this music I want. And Hans said, Oh, that was Mark. Mm -hmm. That's the story I heard. And I was in in the studio with Hans at the time. So I, I think it's probably accurate. But the other side of this thing is that Michael Kamen had been hired to score speed. He was hired. He was working on it. And um, I think that Jan felt like he wanted more of an electronic score. I think he was thinking, I don't know exactly what he was thinking, but I know Terminator was some of the stuff they, they tempt with. And I think Jan was thinking, I don't want a traditional score. I want it to be more electronic. Mm-hmm. So I think the studio was pushing Jan to have a, uh, uh, Michael do it. I think in fact, and they they hired him and, and, and it's a drag, you know, cause, cause what Jan told me was no, 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 you're doing my movie. Don't pay no attention to the studio. They don't know what they're talking about. Well, then the studio would call me and say, don't touch the movie. You're not doing the movie. You're a nobody. So don't do anything. So I had these, this thing going on. It ended up that Mark Gordon, who was producing the movie was sort of calling me. He realized Jan wasn't going to change his mind, but he was also banned from talking to me. He knew the studio was really mad. So he was kind of like just calling me going, just, just tell me that it's going okay. And that it's a good score and that it's going to be okay. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Uh, I hear a lot of stories of just, you know, Jan had a vision and he pushed it through. They, they would push back and he had, he was definitive and he's kind of cutthroat. Like this is, this is my vision. This is what I want. And uh, yeah, he stood he by there. me. I mean, I, I would have been thrown off that movie in two seconds. I even when I called my agents and I said, hey, I'm going to do this movie speed with Jan DeBond. He just was at my studio. He loves what I'm doing. You know, my agents went, we already signed somebody to that. You don't have that job. 
you know, so it was really confusing. Let me interrupt just for a sec to get some reactions to that. First of all, the late Michael Kamen was the acclaimed composer of the Lethal Weapon and Die Hard franchises. So, obviously, he's someone the studio might think of for speed. He also worked with bands like Pink Floyd and Metallica in his time and picked up Oscar nominations for songs he co-wrote for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and Don Juan DeMarco. I asked a few folks about his involvement here and I've heard yes, he was definitely hired. And I've heard no, it didn't quite get that far. I'll start at the top of the food chain with former Fox exec Jorge Saralegui. Was Michael Kamen hired to compose the score for Speed? His name rings a bell. I mean, obviously his name rings a bell, but I'm I'm saying it's quite possible that he was, and then something happened. It might have been that the studio wanted Michael Kamen, and he said no, and Jan wanted Mencina, who is not Michael Kamen at the time, right? Okay, and Jan did fight for him. I mean, Jan fought for everybody who he wanted for whatever reason. You know, sometimes there were good reasons, sometimes there were bad reasons. In this movie, there were almost all good reasons. All right, fuzzy memory. Let's go to producer Mark Gordon. Michael Kamen was was a discussion, and I was talking to, I think Sam and Mike represented Michael Kamen too. So he was a serious conversation, but ultimately was never hired. I think somebody may have given him, somebody talked to him and said, you're going to get this job, but he was never hired. And Jan didn't want him. A discussion? Okay, though it's starting to sound like a couple of agents got out ahead of their skis to me. Finally, here's what Kevin Ross, one of editor John Wright's assistants, recalled quite vividly. Michael came in, like, came in our cutting room and we thought he was going to be our composer. And then like a week later, Jan's the one that was like, no, I already hired this other guy. I like this other guy. And so they had to pay off Michael Kamen. Somewhere in there lies the truth. Kamen passed away in 2003. But for Mark Mancina, this had to be a rough start and a blow to his confidence when he's saddling up to his first solo gig as a film composer. Let's get back to that interview. The whole thing was weird. You know, I must have smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. <laughs> The other thing that was weird was that the head of production for Fox, his name escapes me. He called Tom me Jacobson up at the time. Said, What's that? Was it Tom Jacobson? Tom Jacobs, that's his name. He yeah. uh, he called me up like about I don't know five in the afternoon, and he said, "I'll be in tomorrow morning at six a.m. to hear the theme to Speed." And I was like, "Well." Jan says, I can't let, you know, anybody in, you know, and he goes, I'll be there at 6 a.m. to hear it. So I, I remember getting up at five o'clock and, and uh, just sweating going, you know, this is going to be a disaster. You know, this is going to be. And uh, I played him uh, the opening title and he just kind of stood there and then he said, OK. And then he walked out. And that's all he said. So, you know, I still didn't know, you know, is he going back to fire me? Is he going back to have a meeting with Jan? Is he, what is he doing, you know? Uh -huh. But I guess he just went back and said it's really good and, you know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that theme. Uh, you, when you watched the movie or whatever the process was here, uh, how, did, how did musical ideas start to take shape? Well, the first thing I did, which at that time, at that time, nobody had ever done. Now I've heard about five composers that are, that are out there uh, tell the exact story. But what I did was I took 
I had a friend of mine who was really, really great at, at sampling uh, instruments and, turning, and putting them on your keyboard. And I had him sample bus sounds. I had him sample wires, uh, metal crashing hubcaps, all sorts of stuff like that. Now you can buy those libraries, but back then that was extremely cutting edge. And what I did was instead of using necessarily orchestral percussion, I used those sounds. And that sort of represented the bus. This uh, friend of mine was able to take those different sounds, put them on my keyboard, and um, I could trigger them, play them, instead of playing timpanis, instead of playing cymbals, instead of playing uh, any type of orchestral percussion, instead of doing that, I had all these sounds. So, you know, instead of a hi-hat going tuck -a -tuck -a -tuck -a -tuck -a -tuck, I had a hubcap, tuck -a -tuck -a -tuck -a -tuck -a -tuck, you know, and it just gave it a, a, a much earthier, it just gave that score a sound that sounded like the bus, mm -hmm. you know, and it made sense. Um, and no and one was doing that. No one was doing that. No one was doing that. Um, people were sampling. I mean, you know, Peter, I was a Peter Gabriel fan. Peter Gabriel was ahead of everybody. Peter Gabriel was ahead of everybody in the music business. He had PeterGabriel.com, I think, in 86. You know, he was just, he was so far, and he was doing that. And, you know, he had probably the only Fairlight, I think, in Europe. Hans had one. Um, but, uh, you know, Peter was doing that thing where he was taking a weird sound, putting it here, then using it as a keyboard pad. Uh, and I was a, such a fan of his and following him. So in the 80s, I was doing that. You know, it wasn't like that was foreign to me. Mm -hmm. So when speed came, it was almost like these are old ideas to take samples and use them as, you know, that's like I've been doing that since 86. But mm -hmm. in the movie business, you know, it was a fairly new thing. And uh, and the rest of it was just a, a straight orchestra. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some guitar. Alan Holdsworth did some guitar for me that was really awesome. He just did some guitar effects that I took and used. Alan played... Uh, with Bill Bruford, who's a great drummer, but he, he played in a band called UK. But the thing about Alan Holdsworth, people like Eddie Van Halen and, and those people will tell you, would have told you that he's the greatest electric guitar player in the world. Um, there wasn't anybody that could touch him. Very kind of unknown because he just did his own thing, but um, absolutely unbelievable if you listen to his, his, his work. And uh, I thought it was a great call to have him play textures because he's the way he plays guitar is so strange and the way the way his guitar sounds is so strange mm -hmm. um so he and he he agreed and he did and he just he just recorded ideas and gave them he didn't like any of them but i loved them so uh <laughs> he gave them to me and i kind of put them put them where i could put them uh i played some guitar but other than that it was really a traditional score with all of those sort of metallic percussive sounds in it which made it really different Mm -hmm. You know, it's become a sound that you hear all the time, uh, especially like in the 90s and the and, and yeah. 2000s. Everybody was doing that. Um, but at that time, nobody had done it. So it was really pretty fresh. No, it's quite seminal. Um, and, and, and I love it. that. That's one of the reasons I love the score so much, because it felt like the beginnings of what would become an, a, a kind of adopted aesthetic through action films of the 90s which i love action films of the 90s i, yeah, I, I think that was the genre only sure you know the problem for me of course as any actor will tell you is they wanted me to just do the same thing on every score you know they wanted me to do yeah. the exact same score on bad boys and i said the bad boys isn't about a bus you know it isn't <laughs> but they wanted the same approach and after two or three or four of those things i just went i don't you know this is not 
I love doing speed, but that's not my goal in my life is to write, you know, the yeah. same action score over and over again. Uh, how about just melodically? How did you come up with just what we know as that, that, that speed theme that kind of soars and comes back and, you know, it's, yeah. it's got an interesting structure to it, you know? Well, the, the, the first thing I came up with was the, uh, the little bit, the bum, 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 that little mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. That was like a little tag um, that just sounded like the bus racing through town. So that tag was really useful. I didn't come through with the theme until uh, I did the bus near the bus rescue when, it, when he's getting people off the bus, not when the bus crashes, but when uh, he's getting people off the bus. Th that scene is what gave me that. That's what gave me the theme to speed, the E minor. I think it's E minor theme. Uh, and I just kept working with it until it sounded heroic and memorable and, and, you know, four notes, whatever it is, simple, you know, which is always yeah. hard. Once I had that, uh, what was great about that theme is it worked in a major key. So when he saved her from the bus, I went to a major key, which Jan loved that. He went. It's the only time it happens, right? Like right. it just opens wide. That's right. And they used that bit for the Braveheart trailer. Do you remember that? No. Yeah, at the end of the Braveheart trailer. I, I remember I remember that music well, and maybe just at the time, not placing it as speed because it's just one moment of the score, right? And then yeah. I happened to be watching something the other day. I watch a lot of VHS in my garage. Like I say, I'm a creature of the 90s. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the Braveheart trailer came on, and I'm doing some work at my desk in there, and I hear the, the speed soaring moment come through. I'm like, what? Oh, that's right. They used it for the Braveheart trailer, of all things. Yeah, uh, it's the only thing from that score they probably could have would have made sense for the Braveheart score uh, trailer. Right, right. The other stuff would have been weird. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I, I walk, I, I walk every morning listening to the score. I drive around town listening to the score. I mean, it's 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 a killer piece of work, and uh, I, I love how it's got movements. Like, th there's a different kind of flavor when it, when they go out, out onto the uh, tarmac. Mm -hmm. it, it seems like it just hits a different. Uh, just sounds like it goes into a different space there. You know, it, um, I grew up with, uh, I mean, if you listen to that main title, you know, the main title I wrote near the end of working on it, I didn't have that opening because I, I didn't know what the opening should be theme wise, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really fun to do it. Once I had all those themes, I kind of had a really good idea of what I wanted to do. But I'll never forget playing that for, for Jan because um, there's one place it's building at the beginning and you have that pulsing thing and 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 then it it builds and there's this big long note and then you hear alan's guitar which sounds like a wire it's like yes you know that thing all yep. starts And Jan just fell off his chair laughing. And I didn't know if he if he was laughing like he hated it, you know, like laughing like, are you kidding me? Or if he, it made him feel so excited. And it, it turned out it made him feel so excited. He could not stop laughing. So he would have me play that over and over for him in the, in the studio just so he could laugh. And uh, I think he just felt like it, it was going to be a really good movie. I think he felt like that thing sets you up for, yeah. you know, this is going to be a ride you know yeah um 
So that was really, really exciting. And uh, that, he, he used that for the tidal wipe away too, is that guitar right. screech yes. when the tidal wipes away. That's yeah. Right. And, and Alan did those for me, which was really great. He was uh, one of my favorite guitar players. I grew up, you know, I grew up on progressive rock. I mean, progressive rock. If you listen to the opening, it might as well be Phil Collins playing drums. It's me playing drums, but it, <laughs> but it's it's me trying to sound like Phil Collins. You know, it's it's there's no cymbals. It's all toms. It's a Peter Gabriel kind of approach, uh, right? And a Phil kind of feel. And and it's so weird that I ended up working with him after that. It's just a strange thing, but uh, that's <laughs> why, as you were saying, chapters. You know, I, I'm really into you know progressive rock had all these sort of chapters and sections and then it would bring back the themes and, you know, come back around and all that kind of classical approach to, to uh, pop music. I really liked that a lot. What did you think about being able to have just that showcase for all of it in the credits? It's, it seems like it's a little bit of a rarity. Yeah. Boy, that was one of the last ones too. I think, um, I think back then it wasn't as rare to have a main title, but uh, yeah, that's, I, the movie I did right after that, which was completely left field. I don't know why they, the director hired me. It was called, um, oh shoot, I'm not gonna remember. It was Goldie, no, it was, it was Farrah Fawcett and Chevy Chase. And it was a romantic comedy. In that movie, I got to also do a main title, completely different, more like a Forrest Gump kind of a score. Um, completely different thing. But that, those are the last kind of main titles I think I ever wrote because they kind of got rid of them, you know, they, they fell yeah. off. Man of the house. Man of the house. But for me, it was, it was, uh, it was great to have that main title. I'll never forget. One of my thrills was, uh, cause I didn't have many thrills. I mean, as, as great as I feel that score is and as influential as I know it is because everybody's still copying it. Um, I didn't get a lot of accolade or a lot of people, you know, wanting me to do stuff because of it. You would have mm. thought that I would have, but I didn't. Yeah. But I was at a, a BMI dinner. David Newman walked up to me and I, did, I didn't, at the time didn't know David Newman. I have big respect for him, uh, but I didn't know him. And he looked at me and he goes, score of the year speed. And then he just kept walking by. And I was like, wow, that's cool. You know? So that that's cool. awesome. Then I met Jerry Goldsmith and he didn't even want to talk to me. So yeah, what are you going to do? But well, whatever. What does Jerry Goldsmith know? But yeah, just thinking about those opening titles and the moments within them uh, and, and you were speaking to the Toms. I, I do know there's that one great part where it's like the score just settles early, like very early, like within a minute, it's kind of gotten quiet. And then the doom, doom. Yeah. And then the soaring theme comes in and yeah. I just I love it. I mean, Jan refers to that as an as an opera, that opening bit. He just he yeah. wanted to treat it like, you know, the opening of an opera, like go through all the movements of the movie yeah. with like. It's definitely an overture. I mean, there's no question about it. That's why I'm saying overture, I wrote it yeah. at the end because I had all the parts. So I took yeah. kind of repieced it together, you know. Yeah. What can you tell me about uh, we were sort of touching on it, but just the the status quo for film music composition at the time and. uh I guess that world that you were kind of coming into and in, in unbeknownst to you preparing to influence and send in another direction. Um, what was radical about what you were doing and what uh, just tell me about that status quo and what yeah. you did and didn't like about it at the time. Yeah. Two, two things. So, so technology was changing everything. And uh, 
what where I had a huge advantage and, and the reason that Hans Zimmer worked with me and the reason that Disney worked with me and all, you know, was that I could mock up my music <clears throat> with synthesizers and make it sound very, pretty realistic, all things considered. And that became an art form, um, an unfortunate art form, but it became an art form because what it would allow a director to do is to really hear what the music was going to be. Mm-hmm. And to not have to guess and then wind up on the scoring stage going, I don't like this, but I'm paying $250,000 today for this orchestra. So changes are going to cost a fortune. It allowed them to sit in my studio and go, no, I don't like that part right there. Change that. And I could change it. It doesn't cost them a penny. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was the advantage and the advantage for getting work. The disadvantage is that people that don't know anything about music can write music. People that know a lot about computers and a lot about how computers work can become composers mm-hmm. and make something that sounds good, might not be real musical, might not be musical to my ear, but seems to be musical to that director's ear. And that director is the biggest director in the universe. So he gets to do whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. And there you have what you have today. You have scores that are a letdown, in my opinion. There are some great ones, but the general score is a... Same old thing. It's like, it's all about sounds. Whoever has mm-hmm. the best sounds win, wins. Um, the other thing that happened in the 90s is there became a backlash to themes. Um, I was writing themes. John Williams wrote themes. Tom Newman, all these guys write Alan Silvestri, thematic scores. So that you know when you play that score, oh, I know that score, that's Back to the Future. You know, boom, mm-hmm. right? Well, that became a curse because for directors, it sort of put a stamp on their movie. It sort of Mm -hmm. dated their movie and their movie became a signature that younger directors didn't want. Older directors loved it. They were like, are you kidding? That's what I want as a signature. I want something that people go, oh, yeah, I recognize that. But Mm -hmm. newer directors were saying, younger were saying. So I would go to a meeting. And they'd be interviewing me for the for the gig and they would say, well, as long as you don't write anything like John Williams, the worst composer of all, you know, and I would look at him like, what? John Williams is by far the finest composer in film that we've probably ever had. So I just couldn't connect to those directors. I would leave those meetings going, I don't want to do this guy's movie if, if that's his you know, reference. Well, if, yeah. if you notice, like towards the end of the 90s and definitely the action movies all through the 2000s and everything. Name the melody. I mean, name a famous Marvel melody. I, I, oh, you know, I, I can't find one. And, and I don't think they want one, you know? And, and it's unfortunate to me because now action scores are just a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for me, Speed was an action score with a bunch of stuff, but it had a theme, you know? And that theme yeah. played such an important role and it became a character. And I'll tell you, and it was important to the actors. I, I saw Keanu at, at uh, the Ivy one time restaurant in, mm-hmm. in LA and I saw him and I, and I thought, I should tell him that I did the score to speed because I know he's a musician. Some of these guys don't give a crap. But <clears throat> so I went up to his table and I said, hey, Keanu, my name's Mark Banshee and I wrote the score to speed. We never met. I just wanted to say hi. And he went, oh, pleasure. And then I went and sat down and then he got up and came over and he said, I love the score to speed. That's like one of my favorite <laughs> things about that movie is the music. I go, well, thank yeah. you. That made me feel really good. Same with Sandy Bullock. I had dinner with her 
five or six years later, just ran into her in, in with my publicist that I had at that time. And she introduced us. And as soon as I said speed, she went, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty cool because I've met several other actors and things that really don't have a clue that what the, what music does in their movies. They just don't even, I mean, it, you know, it's important, but it's like a necessary evil, you know? It adds to their character. They have to understand that. I mean, it's like, it, it's part of the, the, the fabric of what you're experiencing. Yeah. You'd that, be surprised. It affects everything. Yeah. It's crazy. Is that, uh, and it's funny, you mentioned the Marvel movies. I think the only one that has anything approaching a theme I can remember is the Avengers and that's Alan. That's Alan. And, and, you know, Alan, Alan is a thematic bozer. I don't think that, I think it'd be very hard for Alan to write as it would be for me to write a movie that has zero theme. Yeah. It's just is um, really not motivating. It's, it's like, uh, you know, composers and musicians use a phrase musical and we'll say things. Uh, I didn't find his performance very musical. Most laymen don't really understand what that means. They're kind of like, what does that mean? Does that mean he's not a good musician? No. Musicality is, a, is subjective and it's all about ebb and flow and taste and texture and when to emote and when to pull back. And there's so much, there's so many nuances to being musical. And the only thing that I can say is it's very hard for me and I'm sure for Alan and Tom Newman and those in, of that ilk to write a score that's not musical. And right. often they want you to because often the music serves a purpose like sound effects. Sound effects aren't musical, mm -hmm. really. You know, so if yeah. they want the music to give you energy but don't get in the way and don't do a theme and don't do this and don't do that, but give me energy... Then you have Fast and Furious. You know, that's what you have. Then you have that. And, mm -hmm. and it serves a purpose. It's like sound effects. It's like sound design. You know, sound design has gotten to be very deep. Um, yeah. I'm not interested in that kind of music. You know, that's just not what I do. Sure. I mean, some of it works if it's like, in my opinion, if it's like, because uh, I, I, I'm often interested in this sort of blurring of the line between composition and sound sound design. And I think of like some of the Johan Johansson stuff or uh, Mika Levy. Yeah. Like that's good. That's good stuff. Uh, but to your point about just the, the sort of prevalent work. It, yeah. It's, it's, well, just you know, I'll tell you something, the score, um, my score that did that for me, that was, I felt was extremely one of my best scores and it got really copied, but I never really received the credit for it because it was subtle but um, Training Day. Training mm. Day has a lot of textures, uh, a lot of cues that are kind of sound design-ish, you know? But when it needed it, it has, the, it has music and mm. it has heart and it has pathos and danger has those things in it. Um, and that was, a, that was an overlooked score. It wasn't, it's funny because it wasn't an overlooked movie. Um, yeah. and, and Antoine loved it, uh, the director, but... Um, I don't know. It was just interesting. It, it spawned quite a bit and it spawned the TV series Criminal Minds, which basically they just wanted me to write Training Day from Criminal <laughs> Minds. The main theme is almost almost similar to one of the cues in Training Day. Um, and it was that kind of a score, too. But yeah, I like that. I mean, I like the blend of sound mm -hmm. sounds and, and music, but you have to know, you have to have the music in there when you need it. You have to know what it is and yeah. how to use it. Um, that's what I find challenging and intriguing sometimes. 
And there's an interesting sort of use of it at the beginning of speed in the in the credits when you kind of hear what sounds like elevator shaft stuff yeah kind of yeah. blending into the beginning of the score and whatnot um they gave me that, that elevator scene early on when they were talking about hiring me the studio gave me the elevator scene and said let's see what you can do with this and i wrote something and they hated it and that was the end of it and then somehow yon came back around and all of a sudden i was doing it so it was really weird was it just the elevator or was it them running on the roof and stuff too it was just the elevator, uh, like doing some of its, you know, falling. It uh, was, it was, uh, it was an early cut of it. Yeah, that's a tough one to dive into. I would imagine. Well, yeah. Also, I just didn't. I didn't even know what the movie was about. I didn't, you know, have yeah. much of it. So, you know. Yeah. I think they were. I think what they were doing is trying to make make me fail so that Jan would get off this idea. You know. Uh, is that why you moved away? I guess. Uh, I mean, one answer is they moved away from making these kind of movies, but. Is, yeah. this, is that kind of why you moved away from working on these kind of movies? Because yeah, and I, I get and your career and I'm like, Michael Bay, you know, I, I did bad boys with him and I didn't, I didn't care for him much at all. And uh, Jerry, I think you're alone on that. No, I'm not. And Jerry, um, you know, I like Jerry a lot, you know, really a difficult, can be a very difficult guy. Um, I don't know how much respect he has. He respects music. He, he knows th that music is super important. Mm -hmm. but he doesn't understand the amount of work that goes into it. I, I always felt like he felt like we spent about an hour working on something and then we'd show it to him instead of a week. <laughs> and um, because he could really dismiss it. Um, so when I did bad boys, they said, uh, Don Simpson and Jerry said, um, you're doing the rock. You have to do the rock. That's our next movie. You have to do it. And I called my agent and I said, enough, enough. You know, I want to do something else. I don't want to. I don't want to keep doing this bash, bash, bash. Sixteenth notes everywhere, music everywhere, action. You know, I I had done. Well, I had done Speed and Bad Boys. I think Twister. You know, and they they you know there's just a lot of action and and um. I just wanted to do something else. Yeah. Well. Personally. And luckily, I had I had some Disney. You know, I had a I had two careers. I had that career, that action thing, but I had relationships at Disney. Because having done The Lion King and having arranged all those songs, I mean, that was a big amount of work and it did really well. So Disney kind of came back around uh, in 1996, 1995, when they were going to do Tarzan. Mm -hmm. um, they started with Alan Silvestri and, and there was something about Phil and Alan that didn't quite click. I don't know what, because they're both great guys, but um, they called me and they said, you know, the first thing we want to do is give you this song you'll be in my heart and see if you can make it fit into the picture and see if you can make it feel like it could be in a Tarzan movie. Mm -hmm. So I just took Phil's voice, erased everything else and just wrote and did my thing all around it. And it worked great and Phil loved it. And so that started an eight year relationship with him. Mm -hmm. So um, sort of had two careers going on at once. Very cool. So, And Hans ended up doing The Rock, right? No, I think Nick Lenny Smith did it. Oh, okay. <laughs> we think we gave it to Nick. <laughs> we didn't want it. We were like, Nick, you go, you go take the abuse. Nick is a, um, well, first of all, Nick is a wonderful, awesome guy, uh, but a, a much more patient man than, than I am. And, and mm -hmm. he doesn't let his emotions get the best of him as I do. Cause I get really wrapped up in what I do in, in my music and it doesn't work real well with people like Michael Bay. You know, you, you, yeah. you have to look at that. Like you're going to paint his house and if he doesn't like the color, just repaint it. You just have to look at it that way. You can't yeah. think in terms of it's musical. 
and it's a musical score and it's emotional and it's, forget it. Yeah. Any yeah. Of those things, you know, did you ever, did you ever uh, clash with Jan on anything? The only time we never clashed. The only time I really had a hard time with him was on speed Two. I think we'll pump the brakes on that. We'll hear from Mark and others about speed Two in due course. For now, let's have him start to bring us in for a landing today. I'll airdrop us in here where we're talking about Mark Gordon because I was curious what kind of interaction he might have had with the producer. Well, I did later because because I did Criminal Minds and he was the producer of Criminal Minds. Oh, of course, Minds. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't understand when I when I saw him. The reason, the only reason, because this is how Hollywood works, right? You would think that me and Mark Gordon did Speed. Why did we not work together? I never heard from him again. Never heard from him until I knew his brother who's a recording engineer. <clears throat> and he said, how come you've never worked with my brother again? And I said, because your brother's never called me or talked to me or anything. I don't know. I don't even know what your brother's doing. So we went in and I showed Mark Gordon some of my stuff. And I showed him training day, a couple of cues from training day. And he was like, I love that. I love training day. I love that music. I love it. I love it. So he had this new series and he said, why don't you write something for it? And he really liked it. So that we began working together again after that for a while, uh, not too long. I, I did that show for a while, and then I kind of gave it over to a couple of guys. Anything else come to mind anecdotally about working on speed on the day-to-day being in there? Uh, it was just terrifying. It was terrifying. You know, it was really my first. It was a small movie. I think it was like a $30 million picture. So at that time, yeah. you know, it was a pretty small film. Sandra Bullock was unknown. Keanu Reeves was known, but he wasn't, you know. Not an action star. Not a big star, not an action star. And Sandy, you know, being un- completely unknown, it wasn't a movie that everybody was anticipating was going to be this great movie. But Jan, I mean, it's so great. It's a great movie. It's a great movie in a Hitchcock world. You know, it's like the way he shot it and the way he did things on, and the way he keeps it moving along and keeps you on the edge the whole time. It doesn't lag. It never sits there for a while. And you know, it's a really, really well done movie. And I was lucky to work on it. I was lucky to write pretty much whatever I wanted. He really didn't push me around too much. There was a few places he had some suggestions and they were good, good suggestions. But um, but it was a lot of music and it was in a re- relatively short time. I seem to remember it was six weeks to write it. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, and, you know, his first time going in with a full orchestra on a, entire score written by I'd done it before but but I don't think a full orchestra just on my own I'm not sure so it was um I was pretty nervous well it certainly worked out didn't it I said it before and I'll say it again Mark Mancina's work on speed amounts to one of the great action movie scores and I'll take it a step further and say one of the great scores of any genre and I love the story behind it this guy passionate about music tinkering around in Hans Zimmer's shop and a first-time director plucks him out of there and gives him a shot. And he just crushed it. I find that's honestly a representative story when it comes to speed. Much about the making of this movie has to do with the right group of people getting the right opportunity at the right time. And as I said, we've got more with Mark down the pike. After all, we still have an electrifying title song to talk about, and Mark has a perspective on that. But before we get there, the speed puzzle is just about complete. Again, what we will see has been assembled and locked. What we will hear, however, still needs to be mixed and finalized. And that ticking clock ahead of release is only getting louder.
next week on 50 miles per hour. With the picture in place, we turn our ears to Speed's Oscar-winning sound design. Speed has an operational field of simultaneous events, and the job of the sound design is to bind it together. We talk to the key sound team members about their various challenges on the project. I remember I had a unique problem with the dialogue because every angle had a different gear wind. So it would be from Sandra and over to Keanu. And by all accounts, it was a race against the clock to meet the release date. He says, we got 21 days total all in. I said, oh man, what I'm seeing as far as sound effects wise in this movie, how are we going to do it? This is like legendary or whatever. There was a meeting where you know Cameron's movie was not going to make its release date, and he's, the bank is open, which was the famous quote. All of that and more next week, right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50mphpodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.